everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Today, I have the honor of having Mr. Raza Rumi joining us today um, to talk about new media, where the landscape is. And Raza needs no introduction, but you know, for those who are unfamiliar with him, he's director at the Park Center for Independent Media, teaches in the journalism department at Cornell. He's also a visiting lecturer at the Cornell Institute for Public Affairs and the founding editor of Nayador Media, which is a bilingual progressive digital media platform. And he is a policy analyst, a journalist, and an author. And I think if I could spend multiple hours, this podcast will just go on and on and on talking about a whole host of issues with Raza. But we're going to jump into and focus narrowly on the new media and the digital media landscape in Pakistan. So Raza, thank you so much for joining us on Pakistanomy today. Thank you so much, Zaire, for the opportunity. I want to start with Nayador and, and just the story and the thinking behind it and what the vision of the initiative was in your mind when you set it up and how has this uh, organization evolved over the last few months and years? Uh, so thank you, Zaire, uh, for your uh, direct uh, uh, approach and being focused. I really appreciate that. Uh, so Neador Media, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a digital startup, basically. And uh, despite the fact it's been around for a couple of years now, it's there's still a baby in, uh, you know, in the works. Uh, it still has to acquire a particular, uh, you know, long-term form and shape. Uh, but uh, basically, um, as you know, that, you know, I my uh, varied and, uh, you know, uh, sort of erratic career um, <laughs> uh, led me to uh, engage with the media in Pakistan, you know, when I, uh, because I was originally a civil servant, and then I worked for many years at the Asian De Development Bank as a governance uh, specialist. And throughout my work, you know, both in the government and both with the international development agencies, you know, I realized how important, uh, you know, public opinion and uh, public engagement was, and I still hold uh, uh, that very, uh, you know, it's 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 something that hasn't changed. My other other views uh, keep on changing, and uh, you know, so I um, in 2008 I started uh, working for the Friday Times uh, for uh, and almost for a decade, I was uh, you know editing the paper and involved with the paper and writing for other publications. And then I also got into TV for uh, a, uh, you know, a couple of years in Pakistan, and then later did the editorship of Daily Times, a, a national paper. And while I was working uh, you know, in the traditional media, uh, it, it was becoming clearer, you know, especially in the last decade or so, uh, that the nature of journalism, not just in Pakistan, but globally was rapidly changing and rapidly evolving. Um, and particularly due to the digital media technologies, as well as how uh, many more people were online. And so I found all of uh, my work, earlier work, really wanting in that re respect. It was only addressing a particular kind of audience, you know, people who buy newspapers or people who sit, sit in front of TV and chain channels and I, uh, and so, so the, I was very much engaged uh, in new media right at the very start because I set up my own blog in 2005, you know, Jahan-e-Rumi and uh, it's still there, but it's more like an archival website now. 
and I founded Bhakti House in 2007, which was a major, which emerged as a major platform for young writers, new voices, alternative opinions, uh, because the real Bhakti House in Lahore, a historical place of learning and exchange and, uh, you know, sort of intellectual musings uh, had been shut down. So I thought, let's do it virtually. So I had a sort of a, a, a background and uh, uh, a, a uh, keen, keen uh, desire to engage uh, with new media. And so in, uh, and when I moved to the US in 2014, uh, obviously my work was also disrupted because you know, I had to leave in, in peculiar circumstances uh, suddenly without plan, without anything. And I was doing all, all sorts of things. I started teaching as you just mentioned uh, but obviously, you know, once you are in the in the sort of habit of uh, uh, writing and engaging uh, with the media, uh, you don't want to give that up. So I met a few interesting people in, uh, you know, overseas Pakistanis in the diaspora who were very concerned about the state and the quality of traditional corporate media in Pakistan, particularly the TV industry, uh, because, I mean, these people... Uh, I mean, they're about four or five uh, doctors, really well qualified, but you know, they are uh, socially engaged both in Pakistan and, and in the US. And they were very keen to set up something like the NPR, you know, the NPR mm -hmm. model, obviously, very ambitious undertaking. Well, and that's interesting. Sorry to interrupt yeah. here that the yeah. idea was NPR, because as you were explaining your own journey and, and how Nayador came about, I was thinking of Vox and what like Ezra Klein did at Vox Media, for example, because he started as a blogger, felt there was a need for wonkier, nuanced, more in-depth analysis. And I was thinking of Nayador as that, but sorry to interrupt there, but go on, like NPR was the model initially that, that they yeah. wanted. Initially NPR, and then of course Vox is very much, I, 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 I'm a regular follower of Vox and Vice and all these new platforms. But in particular, what has really inspired me is, is Democracy Now!, uh, which uh, is a, a smaller independent media outlet, but here huge outreach, really credible, really sort of adversarial in many ways and uh, totally different from the mainstream TV industry in America. And the, you, you know, that's a subject I teach at Ithaca College as well, the independent media sector in the US, which is non-corporate, non you know, non-profit, yep. subscription-based, public funded, uh, which is free of the imperatives of the, of the corporations and, uh, and their economic or business interests. So, uh, so with the help of these uh, people, and there was a very generous uh, businessman in Karachi as well, and they all uh, started contributing very small amounts every month uh, to raise a little bit of money so that we could, uh, you know, hire a video uh, videographer, you know, hire a website editor, some, somebody who could set up the website. And so, it, you know, it came into being. And it still remains very small. And that's a major challenge. And we can talk later, you know, when we come to that. I mean, you know, the financial or the business model is a is a global uh, issue with the media industry or, 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 or media outlets. And, you know, we are no different. But what has happened over time is that, you know, Neador has uh, made some impact and found traction. So it also gets a lot of flack, you know, by a variety of constituencies in the Pakistani, you know, cyberspace. And, um, and people think it's some, something really big and 
some kind of a huge organization uh, with hundreds of staff. Actually, not. It's a very small team of three, four people, including me. Uh, you know, and and for me, I I I cannot even be full time engaged in it because of my other re responsibilities. Uh, but you know, I um, my primary uh, objective has been. Uh, to not only engage the young journalists, young writers, uh, young uh, videographers or, or thinkers, but also to create a platform which, which sort of speaks to uh, the younger uh, people or, the, or, or people who are on, uh, and, and young, most young people are online, they're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram mm -hmm. or, and other spaces. And how do we engage with them when so much of you know, bombardment of uh, both, uh, you know, right-wing um, news, right-wing commentaries, you know, and um, distorted or, or uh, information, um, some would even call it disinformation. Uh, so, you know, while the, in the days that I was doing this, you know, the Panama case was underway in Pakistan, which was like completely, uh, you know, um, and um, re being reported and commented in a very controlled narrative. So everybody was convinced, including many mem members of my family that, you know, Panama Papers uh, prove Nawaz Sharif's corruption and, and other politicians and whoever there. Uh, and therefore, you know, there was a time to, to, to fix this and remove uh, him and, and, uh, and others like Nawaz Sharif from power and bring in a clean government into office. So, you know, so such was the power of uh, mainstream media at that time. And there were very, very few people who were kind of swimming against the tide. And then, uh, you know, so that was the impetus. And, and in that time, I was uh, mulling over and, and uh, noting that, you know, whatever critical or alternative opinion or information was available, it was uh, available on the social media. So, Based on that, I think uh, it was a very timely uh, intervention in my view, and I hope it kind of grows. I mean, uh, of course, you know, it's a startup, it's young, it, it can make mistakes, it can falter at different points, just the way babies fall down yeah. while they're walking, uh, when they learn how to walk. So I'm hoping that, you know, it turns and grows and, and sort of, you know, is not just one of those initiatives which start and then die, you know. I want to touch, I mean, a couple of very interesting things you mentioned, right? One was sort of the young audience is online. They consume their content on YouTube, Facebook, they're on social media, but there's also this belief in mainstream Pakistan. And the way I've increasingly started thinking about it is that the palette of the Pakistani listener or the consumer of information is, is used to junk food diet or is used to the mirch masala diet. So when you bring in something more nuanced, like you know, if you're thinking about food, an Italian pasta dish or a French cuisine, um, they won't get it because the flavor profile is so nuanced that it, it, won't, it won't work and they'll be like, Ye kya le right? What has been your sort of, as you've been on this journey and see the audience online, the comments coming in, and we'll touch upon the flag part just in a bit, because I want your opinion on a couple of other things that have happened in Pakistan. But in terms of the quality and the nuance of content, what have you found in terms of the, how the audience responds to something that is very much different from what the mainstream, mainstream diet is in terms of media? 
So I think you're absolutely right. Your diagnosis is very correct. I mean, in the sense that, you know, the way uh, media functions, I mean, in, not just in Pakistan, actually, to be honest, I mean, it's a global thing. I mean, look at yeah. what, what happens in the US, you know, the local cable TV, the noisy screaming headlines and uh, and all the all the online outlets, you know, with uh, with all sorts of dubious stories. So uh, the situation is not too different uh, in Pakistan either. In fact, it's accentuated uh, because there are fundamental things which the Pakistani media does not cover. So one of the objectives that we have in we, we had and still have in mind was that how do we bring in uh, some kind of uh, raise public consciousness about things like climate change, public health, you know, education, water and sanitation, women's rights, you know, child rights, uh, yeah, all sorts of uh, uh, agenda. And our experience was was kind of mixed. You know, initially we used to do text-based videos, short videos with 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 text as explainers. And the traction, frankly speaking, wasn't really that great. You know, I mean, it still is the case when you do a program against the uh, ill effects of tobacco, uh, you know, only let's say 200 people come on the, on, on the live session, as opposed to if you do a, a live stream on Imran Khan or, you know, Imran Khan versus Nawaz Sharif or Nawaz Sharif versus establishment, and you have thousands, mm. you know, who immediately jump. Well, part of the part of the it has to do with the fact that you know people also have come to the conclusion that what the mainstream media is telling them is not the full picture. It is distorted or controlled or sanitized or you know particularly designed uh, to not give the full picture of what's going on. So one of the, uh, one imperative is that, but the other way is that you know human whenever you do storytelling with a human angle where you were real in real human beings um, and their real issues and their real stories find where you can bring in all those messages you know you can bring in messages whether it's about health or it's about education or poverty or inequality and some of those stories have really done well so for example i'll give you you know a few former students of of lums you know which is a very good institution so you know uh, don't get me wrong uh, but you know they have this stream of scholarship students, you know, uh, who uh, who get a full scholarship, I think 10% or whatever, 20%. And so they started writing their stories of what they faced as young, uh, you know, students entering into an elitist university. And those stories got so much traction because they spoke to so many people, you know, about the class difference, about the lifestyles, about how... Uh, you know, an outsider in an elite institution fares, and and uh, uh, so so we have tried to uh, to you know give space to all sorts of stories, but obviously with an angle, uh, which kind of with a view to educate the public on vital issues. So the mirch masala, as you said, the spice, sadly, is a requirement. Uh, you know, it's not going to go away in the short term or even in the medium term. Uh, but I am very hopeful that as we go along, as more and more people engage with the uh, serious issues, uh, with online outlets, you know, because there have been other outlets that, that have come into being, uh, you know, Neado is not the only one. I mean, there's Soch, you may have seen that. There is, uh, you know, uh, Sojag has really done, done a makeover. Uh, there's um, another one called Current PK, which is more 
tilted towards entertainment than news, etc. But they are all online and they're all uh, bringing out fresh uh, new ways of presenting content and stories. So they have, um, so I guess as more and more people engage with this, you would build an informed audience. And now we have, you know, so for example, we have since, uh, I mean, the pandemic in 2020, uh, while it was devastating in so many ways, you know, but it, uh, it had some silver linings because they, uh, because we could do live streams, you know, we could do live YouTube uh, videos. And since, I think since June, we started doing that. And, uh, you know, the response has been overwhelming. I mean, in the sense that, you know, not just that every, every video is sort of seen by thousands of people, sometimes even more than 100,000 people, uh, but also you have now, we feel that, you know, we are building an on online audience and that audience is not interested in spice or, you know, fights or, you know, name calling, Imran is this, Nawaz is this, no. I mean, they are interested in issues. They want to know why democracy doesn't work in Pakistan. What is the problem with mm. political parties? Uh, what are the issues of the, uh, you know, economic management uh, by the current government? Or what, what are the key long-standing crises of governance that every government in Pakistan faces? So that's that, that's been a really hopeful sign, you know, if I may uh, summarize it like that, because which basically shows that there are people out there, they want to engage with serious stuff, you know? and nobody's reaching out no I mean, they, they don't have many alternatives you know because yeah. they the channels in pakistan i'm sure you you follow them very closely there i know uh, because you keep on tweeting <laughs> about what you see and and experience is that you know it's a copycat formula it's a copy you you go to x you you open ary and you'll see three politicians from three different parties abusing each other and the anchors are very smartly in you know creating an inflammatory or a, or a really uh, divisive, conflictual uh, discourse, you know, or uh, you would see, you know, a typical well-known, you know, analysts who have a particular uh, view and 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 politics, which we have, which we are quite familiar with. And you know, I just don't want to name names, but you know, they're everywhere every evening, and they say the same thing every day. Every day they, they say politicians are corrupt. Every day, they, so it's a it's a drumming in of this message in the public mind that you know everything evil has to do with politicians in Pakistan. If you remove that, things are going to get so much better, mm -hmm. like the Ayub Khan model that our prime minister praises. You know, with the military boss in on very good terms with the U.S. and a very capable bureaucracy running the country and democracy. Oh well, forget it. What does it even mean? Well, e e even just that, there's so much confusion, right? Because on the one hand, on, on that point, you have the idea of uh, riyasat e Medina, and then you very quickly flip on to, we need a you know, transition period like the United States or a presidential system like the United States. And then you very quickly transition into, we need a Chinese model because look what they've done. And just in terms of as someone who's read democracy, not even democracy, like political economy, how do institutions functions across a whole host of countries based on their unique experiences. I can't wrap my head around how those three things somehow come together and are articulated in a way that, you know, people still buy into. And I'm like, wait a minute, like the core principles of all three systems is in direct conflict with each other. Forget about even the 
the the checks and balances of the American system, for example, right? And it just doesn't add up. But you you mentioned the mitz masala thing. I think that what I see Naya Dor and others trying to do is basically meet an unserved and an unarticulated need of the audience, right? And so as you start meeting and serving that need, and people get educated while watching you. It's a journey. It's a two-way journey between the institution, Nayador in this case, for example, but also the listener who over time will develop that sophisticated palate where you are still initially giving that healthy dose of red chili flakes in terms of getting them there, but you're adding other flavors on top and over time you build that, right? And I think that's a very important uh, contribution in terms of informing the public and as more people digitize come online, you will see that transition happen and hopefully that breaks the groundhog day like issue uh, with Pakistan where things keep repeating itself like you don't, you said a you can you can just go back and read newspaper articles from the 50s 60s and fast forward to 2020 and pretty much the diagnosis is still the same corruption politics bad bureaucracy. And if we just break this, everything will be fine, which is not, it's not as simple as that. I want to touch upon a couple of things, like as you sort of, you know, grown in, in Nayador, um, what are some assumptions that you initially had, like that you look back initially, you know, in time and say, okay, I thought this was the way it was going to, evolve. obviously the pandemic has changed everything, right? From YouTube live sessions to people's appetite to coming on webinars, et cetera. But what were some other, assumptions that you had that you know were tested you had to change course and you sort of learned along the way that you know this was a different way of doing things uh yeah so lots of learning there of course you know uh first of all uh the you know the the, the important learning has been that you know it is very difficult to get digital marketing and revenues you know it's a very nascent and a very uh you know underdeveloped area in Pakistan, you know, PayPal doesn't work, for example. So when you ask people to contribute money, I mean, how do they do it in Pakistan, you know, and then there are all sorts of restrictions. I mean, you know, with the with with, with banks and also, I mean, these are just the lo logistical issues. But I think uh, the real challenge um, or, or, or a case in learning has been uh, to find and hit the right kind of audience, you know. So initially, we were like covering everything. Uh, initially, it was like all over the place, and then oh, more and with, with, with time, we have started uh, becoming more focused and finding the right target audience. I mean, to build a, a particular brand and a, and a particular following and a particular engagement. So uh, we're still in that process. I think uh, that has been uh, a major learning point. But you know, I just want to actually uh, say a bit more on the on our earlier um, uh, point. Uh, which, you know, over time, the informed audience develops. And, you know, for that, you have to create those spaces. So, you know, Uzair, I mean, you are much younger than I am. When I was growing up as, you know, in school, etc., there used to be a great, uh, uh, you know, magazine called Viewpoint, which was published from Lahore by progressives. And, you know, I used to, as I, I still remember in, in A-levels, my teacher used to have had those copies and he would, you know, loan them to me. And that was completely different from what uh, was in the main newspaper. I mean, TV was very controlled because PTV was the only channel and it was General Ziaulak's martial law. Uh, but, you know, viewpoint, and then we, we had Frontier Post, which was a very 
uh, sort of groundbreaking newspaper for quite some time until it also has really come down and crashed. And then in more recent years, in the uh, 2000s, we had the uh, example of uh, Daily Times, which was set up by Salman Tasir and Najam Saiti, which initially came out to be a really, you know, amazing paper with, with really uh, uh, smart and sharp commentaries and really uh, well curated, uh, verified news. And that sadly, I became its editor. That's also gone gone down the drain. You know, this is a so that so there's a problem um, uh, of of sustaining these uh, these models and the institutions, and that has been one learning point. And now, so we are what we are trying uh, to to build our future engagement is that how do we earn more from YouTube? How do we earn more from websites so that we become totally financially self-sustaining, self-financed, and uh, we don't have to ask for donors or, or go here and there uh, to individuals and say, okay, whatever. So that has also been, uh, you know, part of our uh, learning uh, process. But, uh, you know, again, I just want to also add another, another point that, you know, um, the U.S. has a has a big uh, and a very uh, vibrant tradition of dissenting or alternative media. You know, throughout its history, even when slavery was there, there were small papers calling for abolition of slavery. You know, in the 19th century, there were uh, papers dedicated to labor rights. You know, the Chicago Defender, uh, which said that you know there there should be an eight-hour working week. There should be uh, you know, uh, um, hours should be re regulated. Uh, there should be health benefits and insurance and security for the workforce. And later on, for women's rights in the in the twentieth century, uh, more more anti-war uh, kind of sentiment. You know, whether it was, it was Vietnam or or other misadventures that the U.S. often engages in uh, abroad. You know, they were journalists and publications, and one particular part publication I want to mention is the IF Stone Weekly. So IF Stone, or also known as Izzy Stone, uh, was this journalist, you know, very popular, very, uh, uh, very well regarded as well, even by his, even with people who didn't agree with him. And he was really scathing and anti-establishment. I mean, he used to uh, work from his house in, in DC and bring out this weekly paper, which even Einstein used to subscribe to, and Marilyn Monroe, you know, look at the range. And it was always exposing the lies of the government, you know, whether it was the war or the economy or the uh, political machinations in the, in the capital. And uh, India has had that tradition and online, you must have seen, you know, outlets like The Wire, uh, you know, that have also emerged. And they are again telling you a totally different picture from the mainstream Indian corporate media, which is, as you just saw recently, how compromised it is. Uh, completely in bed with the uh, security establishment and the political government in Delhi. So, so you know, uh, so what I'm trying to say is that what I uh, um, I see personally, I feel, and and I view Neador as part of this continuum. What is happening globally in Europe as well? Multiple outlets, multiple websites are have emerged in response, or in fact, even uh, even in protest against what the mainstream media is doing to public information and the public mind. And in Pakistan, though, it's even worse. And we can talk about that because I think I've, 
I'll let you ask your next question. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a very important and a good segue into my next question, right? I think that room, that platform for dissent or even questioning what is considered quote unquote fund fundamental truths in any society, I think you have to have an institution or a set of institutions that question and vigorously question that. Um, not by misinforming. We're seeing this in the United States because you know we've had since November uh, a conspiracy theory that is now believed by two in three or three in four Republicans that the election was stolen. Again, that type of questioning is a different set and it's on the other side of the spectrum. Um, but you need that type of space in a country like Pakistan. But in Pakistan, what tends to then happen is that a Nayador or a Soch or what have you, when they start asking this, you mentioned Panama, right? So let's stick to that. That when you were asking the pointed questions around Panama and what was going on with the investigation under the garb of this idea that we need a quote unquote clean government, um, you get labeled as an agent or working with foreign yeah. adversaries. Recently, it's about fifth generation hybrid warfare, right? And everyone gets lumped into that. How do you then navigate that space and, and, and function within it? That's honestly speaking, that's a really stressful, uh, uh, stressful part of this whole work, you know, and sometimes I, you know, when, when I see an abusive uh, tweet or a whole thread targeting me, I just say, why the hell am I doing this? I mean, I have my other vocations, I can just do a, have a nice, uh, you know, enjoyable life. Uh, in, in both Pakistan. Yeah, you could go you could go skiing in upstate New York and just enjoy your winter versus exactly. doing Nayador. Yeah, or, or come back to Pakistan and join one of the corporate, uh, you know, companies as a communications or whatever, policy, policy, government affairs, and, you know, have a nice life, play golf or whatever. But, um, but I'll tell you that 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 is the most uh, uh, problematic part, the fifth generation warfare, as you said, I mean, you know, part of, uh, or hybrid warfare, actually, that's what the initial term was and now the more popularized uh, version is the fifth generation and you know honestly i've been trying to research on it i interviewed a few people and i still have to come to a working definition and contents of what a fifth generation warfare entails but that's a separate story so when i was uh, when i started um, when i entered the tv industry you know from 2010 I uh, was regular on Pakistani television channels, late 2009 to 10. I was a regular, uh, you know, sort of commentator uh, until I got my own show with a new channel in Islamabad. And then I was every day, every night there. So in those days, again, my views bothered a lot of people. And they used to say, you're an Indian, Indian agent because you're speaking the Indian language. And, and I, incidentally, one of my, my, my very first book is called Delhi by uh, Heart. You know, it's a, it's actually a, a travelogue into the past, into the, into the Muslim past, if I may add, of Delhi, right? Where suits the Zaid Hamid version of history very well, if, if you think about it. That it was if, he, our... if they actually bother reading it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. And they said ke ye to, uh, he writes um, uh, a book called that. It, so he's an Indian agent, he's a raw agent. And you know, there were these Twitter threads. And I used to laugh at them initially until, until what I went through in 2014, you know, near the assassination attempt. And then I left, of course, and I told you what I was doing, you know, and I'm still doing abroad. And then, I, and now with this Nyadog getting traction, now that there's a new thing called the CIA agent. And how do they, how do the Mavericks find that? 
because in the summer of 2016, I spent three months at a um, organization called the National Endowment for Democracy as a fellow, uh, where I actually was working on a book project, which is still in the works. Uh, that's a separate story. And, uh, and it's there in the public that what my topic was, my face, my everything. And so they've taken that website as a proof, you know, remember. Well, that I really quickly pause on that. That's super interesting. I did not know that, but it is hilarious because the NED gets its funding the same way the USIP does. And Pakistan's current NSA acting or whatever, the special advisor is an alum of USIP. So if that's the logic, then there is a lot of questioning to be done in terms of how you go from NED and USIP to serving the country. But anyways, continue. What to do, but and just to add, my first fellowship was at USIP. So obviously the trolls, the hyper, hyper patriotic trolls have ignored that. You know, they've just focused on that one where they could find. So, so that's obviously a way to discredit me and discredit Nayadar, but you know, generally to again put a, you know, shut my mouth. Now they can't really, because I'm half or more than half the time I'm in the US. So maybe it's not that easy. Uh, and, and because it's all online. So, you know, where, where would you go and uh, clamp down on Nayadar? You know, you have a junk building, so you can go and put a uh, lock or a, or a TV station. You can go and physically seal it, you know, but how do you seal that something which is, all operating online. So I don't know what, what the issue is. So, so they're picked up because, you know, and, uh, you know, I was a fellow at USIP and I'm very happy and proud and, and very thankful because I wrote a major big report there, <clears throat> which is on the internet. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I was in a traumatic, post-traumatic uh, state uh, when I left the country. And after a few months, I got this fellowship and I was very happy that, you know, I'm doing something productive, putting together all what I've learned or was learning in, on, on paper. And then I was also a short, uh, I had a brief stint with New America Foundation. So, you know, this agent line is very long. So I don't know how, how, the, how will they decide which, which, uh, which one to target me for. But, you know, that this is a, this is a problem which has actually is partly located. I'm not even going to go and say a conspiracy theory that X is uh, getting this uh, uh, this propaganda out uh, against me, you know, whether it's the, a political party, because a lot of these people are both PTI supporters and uh, avid supporters of the establishment. So, but I will not blame them. I will not blame them because this is what we have taught them. This is what we have taught them through our curricula, our textbooks. This is what we teach them day in and day out on television uh, through newspaper columns uh, which their elders have read in the in the newspapers and this is what sells on social media so i can just go and say this guy uzair yunus i have uh, information that uzair yunus you know is a kgb guy and i will write this and you cannot really all you'll do is you'll attack you'll say you liar you'll report my yeah. tweet Maybe Twitter might, you know, take it down, but Twitter doesn't do that unless it's Trump, right? Big, big shots get censored on Twitter. So, uh, but, but that's the state of, uh, that's the other side of new media, which is it's vile, it's, uh, it's uh, filthy, abusive, and uh, potentially dangerous uh, side. Uh, but just going back to the earlier, so so what what we have done, so you know our newspapers, the Urdu newspapers, it's, it's especially, and the Urdu column, 
for decades has been a uh, kind of a well of conspiracy theories. So, you know, uh, there were theories that, do that do Dr. Abdus Salam, who's the first Nobel laureate from Pakistan, we should be proud of his work, and I personally am, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, so there were these columnists, really senior columnists, who have written in the mainstream newspapers that Abdul Qadir Khan was selling the nuclear program to Israel. He was giving them the details. And poor Abdul Salam was not even fully involved in the evolution of a nuclear program. So uh, when, when Pakistan was fighting uh, US's war in Afghanistan, the first one, you had to see how the newspapers built the mythical legends of the Taliban. They are these uh, secret warriors blessed by Almighty Allah. And they will go and they will push the Soviet Union out and all the kufr or, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, uh, her heretics will be, the, the, the Soviet atheists will be fired and the world will turn into a paradise for Muslims, you know. It's, and then the same narrative, these people who, who had been trained and, you know, the space which had been given were later justifying what the TTP was doing. You know, yeah. he was killing us, us Pakistanis, our soldiers, our heroes, our, our police wallas, our, our security forces, our shops, markets, uh, dargahs, you know, you name it. And then, you know, because you had, you had pushed that genie out of the bottle. And, and that's why part of this media work, part of Neador's, you know, because going back to your initial questions about the genesis and the rationale, raison d'etre, is to counter this nonsense. You know, this nonsense that, you know, you see this nonsense against Malala, a young woman whom we should be proud of for her bravery, you know, as a young, even when, even as a child, she was blogging, you know, and about education, you know, what's, what can be more schools in my area? So that is supposed to be anti-Pakistan. So they do this to Malala, they do this to Abdus Salam, they, they, they do this to any other person who takes up a particular cause and media becomes mainstream media is a culprit. There's a famous TV presenter now turned politician and on his, uh, on, on his show on, on, on mainstream TV watched by millions, you know, once he, uh, once he berated uh, the Emedy community within a few days, we saw Emedis being gunned down. Uh, the second time he berated uh, the Shia community. And it was so that, you know, you allow people to, uh, to make these um, uh, abusive and senseless and, and uh, completely crazy remarks about your fellow citizens, just based on their faith or their sect or whatever. So, you know, we have, we have created this. So, so the media is no, uh, uh, no sort of, you know, um, bubble in, in the society. It is what the society is. It is what the society uh, shapes it and, and it, it, it kind of sometimes amplifies it. So what we have to do, I guess, not just through Neador, I mean, that's a little fry, but I guess in general, in our online engagement, in our uh, public affairs, in our, in our public engagement work is how do we counter this kind of um, disingenuous, uh, disingenuous myth-making, uh, lies, disinformation, misinformation, and I guess it's a it's a tough agenda ahead. Yeah, and as you were describing all of that, I was thinking back to my <clears throat> early teen years, 
post 9-11 in Karachi and we used to get Jung, Don, and every once in a while, either Awam or Ummat at home. And I remember reading Ummat and reading all sorts of weird stuff that would then somehow find its way. And as I got older, I realized what exactly you were explaining, that it would find its way to the member of the mosque, where it would be either about Nike is a Greek goddess. So if you wear Nike shoes or Nike socks, your namaz will not be accepted. Or if you uh, have had young boys go into Afghanistan after the US invasion of Afghanistan, that they're being helped by the angels. And a few weeks later, you obviously realize that almost all of them died in bombing raids conducted by the American Air Force because they were enemy militants. Um, or, and, or, or like, for example, the, the, the one of the ones that always stuck with me was when Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan died. And there were whole columns written about how, you know, he his grave was uncovered mm -hmm. and he was in this punishing position by God because he was a singer and all those things came from either an ummat or an ummat like publication and then found its way on the Friday sermon and you're absolutely right it fed an entire generation and continues to feed an entire generation with all sorts of ridiculous junk theories that become truth because they repeat it so often right and I think that that is a big challenge for any society to counter um, a couple of Finishing questions on this. I mean, you've explained the the the, the reason and the vision behind Nayador, and I want to touch upon sort of your personal sort of theory of change. It's a question I've been asking more and more people over time. Is you know you're involved in trying to change the narrative, trying to inform the public about what's going on in the country, what the solutions are, and what the issues are um, away from the mainstream. But what is your personal, but you, you know, you've written books, et cetera, all sorts of stuff. Um, what is your personal theory of change when it comes to Pakistan? Like how does the country exit out of this loop that it's found itself in for at least the last five, six decades? Uh, I know that you had warned me of this question, but frankly, I, I, I did not uh, really prepare for it and uh, forgive me for that. So I'll ramble a bit. But before that, I just want to make a little, little addition. You know, this 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 term theory of change is also uh, a bit problematic to me because you know, uh, as you perhaps you may or may not know, I also consult. I mean, I I used to be a consultant in the development sector, and this whole theory of change business is just too donor <laughs> donor centric, and it just. <laughs> Triggers, triggers me. Yeah, I can go on a, on a different different direction. But yes, what I, in uh, in all seriousness, it's a very valid and a very important question. And thanks for raising it. So I I say there's no one thing. I mean I think it's a set of certain uh, certain um, uh, um, ideas uh, which would comprise such a vision or or a strategy or uh, of of change. And I think I and I think generally it's about where five things uh, in general uh, and five things and I will start with the first and foremost and first and foremost happens to be a, a complete redirection of the state uh, state how it defines itself how it views itself how it projects itself and how it functions and I know I know this is um, complicated but I, I guess that for too long Pakistan has been has uh, viewed itself from since the 1947, you know, when we came into being as a very vulnerable country with a big uh, hostile neighbor 
and Sardar Patel saying Pakistan is going to go away and Nehru saying, oh, one day it may, may not survive. So, you know, we have this, this thing of insecurity. So the, so the national security paradigm uh, that we have espoused and, and everybody and people say it's the military, whatever, no. Politicians do that, our thinkers, our intelligentsia, everybody's into it. I guess that needs to change and that needs to sh shift towards something else. It needs to shift to uh, a developmental welfareist state, just like the models we know. And, uh, and you know, there are no surprises. We know China next door to Pakistan has eliminated poverty. Eliminated is the word. I mean, you know, uh, when I used to work with the ADB, we used to write in our documents to reduce poverty, objective number one. And, you know, I would say, why reduce? It means some poverty is okay, you know? It's a very neoliberal imagination of, of poor and poverty. Well, but China has demonstrated that it has reduced poverty. Look at South Korea, look at Malaysia, look at, uh, you know, uh, so many other countries, you know, which, have, which are overtly developmental states. So we need to have that priority where economic growth, public welfare, services, uh, you know, domestic investment, not foreign investment, sorry, you know, which is a huge obsession in Pakistan and, 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 and all the uh, Pakistan's uh, writers, you know, foreign investment, big deal, you need domestic, you need to generate domestic investment for jobs, right? And that's how you, you get economic growth. So that's one. Number two is again, a redefinition, which is the redefinition of a, this self-identification of as a Islamic nationalist country with the Ummah's, uh, you know, take it out of Ummah, that everything that goes wrong in, in the Muslim Ummah, Pakistan is somehow responsible to lead and to, you know, so you have, you have brainwashed generations that today thousands and thousands of people come on the streets and say boycott France or throw nukes at France because some idiot there has made some blasphemous cartoons or, or, or in Denmark. I mean, where is it coming from? It's coming from this imagination. We can't blame the mullahs all the time. We can't blame our faith. Our faith has no such thing. It is a very well-crafted, deliberate policy of legitimacy that state has adopted because it's not delivering growth, jobs, services, clean water, health. So it's giving this, this um, little little sort of, you know, uh, uh, appetizer, which, which is meant to keep you happy and going, you know, you are the leader of Ummah, you're the castle of Islam, you're the fortress of Islam. And that has, I personally feel that has in, influenced and impacted generations in Pakistan. So, you and, know, and, Pakistanis are... And, and sorry, yeah. really quickly, it, it, the children is selectively deployed, right? So the France will get, uh, France will get protests, Israel will get it, maybe nothing too much about the Rohingya and what's going on in Myanmar, definitely nothing about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, um, for example. So it's selectively deployed again to maneuver the state around, you know, the, the limitations of that, that definition itself. Absolutely. So, so well put, Zerta. Thank you for, for adding that. Uh, selective and completely hypocritical because the Muslims in Pakistan, <clears throat> when they are attacked by, by extremists or by terrorists, you know, the condemnation is divided. Some people say, oh, they asked for it. 
Why are they Shia? Why are they Ahmadis? Why are they Christians? Why haven't they converted to a good, good majoritarian Sunni faith? So obviously, you know, it's it's all linked to that identification. And sadly, again, this has been espoused right from the time of our first prime minister, you know, Liaquat Ali Khan, who was a good guy in other respects. But in this respect, he bungled and laid the foundation of what we are experiencing today. It was done by Bhutto. So I, I repeat that it is, it is not, a, you know, it is fashionable in Pakistan to lay the blame for everything at the door of the military. And people forget that these so secularists, you modern Muslim, Liaquat was a modern Muslim, secular in approach. Well, first, I, I was going to ask you, like, so you mentioned Liaquat Ali Khan. I personally believe that the original sin was the objective resolution, which was pushed by Liaquat Ali Khan, was wondering what your opinion on that was. Absolutely, the original sin, and Liaquat Ali Khan did it for his own legitimacy. He had no constituency in Pakistan. He was elected in, in an area which, were, which was in India, United India. And so he had to build in, uh, and become this, this Thekedar of Ummah. And from the objectives re resolution to today's riyasat e Medina, trust me, there's just a difference in words or phrases and, you know, reshuffling of the same vocabulary, but it's the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's just not the, so that's the second one. You know, we are a territorial nation state. There are four federating units. There are other territories. We are a land with the 5,000 years of history. We are, we, are, uh, we are the inheritors of Gandhara civilization, of the great Indus Valley civilization, and everything is Pakistani. Pa being Pakistani is not just about you know, being a Sunni and a Punjabi, which I am, you know, thankfully and, uh, and proudly, but, <laughs> but it's, way, it's way beyond. You know? The Baloch is also a Pakistani. The Zikri is also a Pakistani. The Ahmadi is also a Pakistani. The dissident is also a Pakistani. The guy in Northwest, uh, you know, who's chanting slogans against the state, he's also a, a she is also a Pakistani. Maybe angry, maybe upset, maybe crying, maybe uh, allergic to to the statehood for for the moment, but remains a Pakistani. You just cannot treat them in that manner. So that's two. The third, obviously. Zair, I mean, you know, it's a cliche, but let's face it, man. When it comes to the list of countries with the highest number of, of school going kids out of school, Pakistan tops, or at least is, is in the top three or two. I mean, it is no matter of pride that on the one hand you say that we are, you know, this country of 220 million people with nukes, and half of our school going age, uh, age kids of half or 40%, 30%, they're out of school. And those who are in school, let's not even go there what they're being taught. Are they employable? Are they, can they think? Can they learn? So obviously, that's a crisis. With, again, going back to the first point, the way South Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, Singapore, Japan, they all grew, they all are examples in the last 50, 60 years who have done well, or Vietnam. They have not advanced without education, a skilled workforce, without technical and vocational education. Even today, you know, when I was 
uh, uh, you know, working in the development se sector. So we should start a re every report that, you know, only the public uh, supply of technical vocational training only caters to 5% of the demand. And after 10 years, you know, I've changed my careers, I've changed my location, I've, you know, I'm changed as a person, I've aged, it still remains the same. Yeah. Maybe it's five and a half percent or six percent. I mean, it's shameful. It's truly shameful. Where we just we are not and and and, and I'm not saying this in a cursive way. No, because without that, you're not going to turn turn into a manufacturing, uh, you know, a rich economy. You're not going to turn into a knowledge economy. All these buzzwords that you know gurus like you write all the time in your articles and and tweets they are unrealizable without this foundation without this basis you know and well, so on that like you know i'm glad you brought this up because it's become a data point i often repeat to people is that pakistan has the lowest youth literacy rate after afghanistan in the region um, not only that but if you're if you look at uh, literacy rates uh, for the youth for children and you look at child mortality rate you are now better off being born in a Rwanda than in a Pakistan and I think that should make people think about the fact that the country ravaged by civil war ravaged by a genocide um, has been able to do what you're describing become a developmental state and educate its people and give them a better quality of health at birth than Pakistan which is a nuclear armed country. Thank you, Zair. Thank you for, for bringing in Rwanda. Now I'm going to attack you on Twitter tomorrow and say that you are, are anti-Pakistan because you compared this tiny African country with our mighty Indus. Uh, <laughs> so, but, 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 but that's a reality. That's, that's exactly my point. But what I'm saying is countries have done it. Countries in our neighborhood have done it. Countries are doing it. Vietnam a war ravaged country where the Americans, I don't know, sprayed what kind of gases and arms that a generation was uh, impaired is on the path of high development. I've been to Vietnam as a, as a staffer of ADB. I, I visited it three or four times, I think Hanoi and other parts. And I was just blown away. I was blown away by the way the state was focused on growth. I was blown away by the fact that the states, the, the governments had a plan, you know, and they knew how to implement it. So, you know, that's the third one. Uh, there are two, two left. The fourth one, obviously, what I mentioned as number two is a, is a change that, that, you know, Islamic nationalist narrative to a territorial nation state idea, and which would basically mean that we have to then think of uh, secularizing the country. I use this word very carefully. I know I'll get lots of bashing for it. I have ba received bashed, uh, bashing and bullets at one point, but I think there is simply no alternative than, uh, you know, uh, to uh, fix our laws, our institutions, our constitutional provisions, and create Pakistan for all Pakistanis. And go back to Jinnah's original ideal of Pakistan, where he very clearly, as in his first speech as a head of the state, whatever Jinnah may have said before as a politician, and yes, he said many contradictory things and people always cite that, that's of no value, because when you are a head of the state, 
you are speaking in a different way. I mean, why can't people get this simple point? I don't know. But anyway, there's this whole baggage in history. He said, this is a country for all faiths. People should have re re religious freedom. I'll go ahead and, I'll, and, I, and I would go one step further that not just that we have to give re re religious freedom, not as some benefactors, but we also have to ensure that they are uh, totally mainstreamed in our society. And, and as far as possible, affirmative action has to be used. So why should the Christians in the Punjab be always sweepers? Why should you advertise posts saying that, you know, Christians must only apply to this post of, uh, uh, you know, a, a cleaner? I mean, how demeaning and so on and so forth. It's a long list. And I think that is going to reduce the tension, that is going to re reduce the fault lines, all that we've experienced. You know, we need to harmonize our society. And number five is federalism. Federalism has been Pakistan's perennial challenge. It has lack of federalism, lack of a workable federalist formula led us to the disaster in 1971, where we lost the majority. I'm not going to moan and say, oh, you know, we lost our brothers and sisters. Yes, we do that. But the reality is that it, if that was not a wake up call for Pakistan, then what could it be? And why did it happen? It simply happened that, you know, the two wings did not have a formula, uh, a, a just, equitable, mutually agreed democratic formula to share power, resources, et cetera, et cetera. 18th Amendment is a good step in that direction, but it's an incomplete step because it, is, it won't be complete until you devolve powers from the provinces to the local governments. So the so federal well, when I talk about of, of federalism, it's not just about Islamabad giving a few ministry ministerial crumbs to provinces or extra money. It means that you devolve power and authority right to the mohalla or the union council level, and you make this functional. So I think these are the five things that I always uh, uh, talk. I mean, I uh, recently wrote a long piece, and the five was a different formula. But for this particular uh, discussion, I've added the two, uh, which have to do with narrative. Which are, how do you ma imagine as a? So you know, I'll I'll tell you there was a British Council survey in 2010, I think, where when young people were asked they, uh, asked this question, how do they identify themselves? You know, as a Muslim or a Pakistani, majority said Muslim first, which is great. I mean, I'm not, I've not, nothing against their faith, but uh, no, Muslim, their ethnic identity, i.e. Pashtun or Sindhi or whatever, and then Pakistani. So I think it's worrying for me. I'm not saying that, you know, being a Muslim is bad, good or bad, or being a Pashtun is a, good, is a good or bad thing. But for me, we've not been able to achieve that particular project of, you know, and we keep on talking about national unity and integration and do all these silly uh, lip service on 14th August and 23rd March. But the reality is that, that we are not going to integrate people until the political, economic, civil, and cultural rights are assured by the state, are provided by the state, and everyone gets their share of the national pie. And I'll end here. I think, I know you said that you hadn't prepared for this question, but those were that was a fantastic answer. And I wrote all five points down, and I, I fully agree with you on, on all of them. Um, I think you need to fundamentally you know, do all these five things if you're to progress as a society. So I'll just leave it there because I don't think I can add anything on top of it right now. Before I let you go, 
Um, last question, what are two or three books that have greatly influenced you personally? It can be on Pakistan or anything else um, that you recommend audience, listeners, viewers pick up and read. Oh, that's, that's uh, again, uh, you know, there's so many books which have uh, influenced me. Uh, and the list is like really, really long. Uh, but I mean, I can cite three of my favorites. So I won't, I, I'm not sure if they really changed. Well, well, they did. I mean, so, so one is, of course, uh, Mas, uh, the Masnavi by Rumi, you know, Divane Shamsi Tabrez, what he calls that. It's now available in all languages, multiple translations for those who are watching, if they're watching in Pakistan. Urdu may be original Persian. I've, I've been struggling to read it in the original Persian. So that is when I was reading Rumi, I, uh, the inspiration for my last name, which, is a, which was a pen name, came in that, post, in that time when I, in the late 90s when I was reading uh, lots and lots and lots of Rumi, you know, his life, his poetry, his works. I still do try, try and do that. So that has changed my mind, not just because Uh, it's a spiritual text, but I think it's a it's a text there which um, uh, which has enabled me to engage uh, with myself and with with the world around me, and look at my my uh, po uh, position as a human being in a totally different light, and that's why Rumi remains after you know what six seven hundred years one of the most influential poets you know in the world today even in twentieth twenty first century. Uh, so the second one. I mean, I know, I mean, there are all these books on politics, etc. But you know, there's one, so there's one guy, I'm sure you may have heard of him, Eric Fromm, who is a, was a, you know, uh, kind of a thinker and a philosopher and a psychologist, all sort of psychologists. And there's, there's this book called The Art of Loving. So I always, uh, that's a very, that's a book which is very dear to me. I read it, uh, when I first read it, I, I really did not Kind of get it, but I think as I uh, as I have grown older, I revisit that book and always feel kind of you know inspired by the everyday gems. And again, it has to do with self knowledge. See, really, before we set out to change the world, we need to change ourselves. You know, that is what what the message of every great philosopher and thinker has been in our context. Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, this late nineteenth century. Uh, thinker, writer, you know, scholar, what was he saying? He was saying the Muslims need to think and to reflect on, on their own about themselves and change themselves. You know, Agrezi Paro, learn English, get educated, know about science, know about the world, have an inquiring mind, mind you know, reject dogma, reject superstition. You know, Sasriyat was just amazing. So, you know, we have this whole history of of this inquiring mind, and and I and I think that's what uh, I would say as the second one, and the third is of course, um, you know, one of my eternally favorite novels by uh, a a major twentieth century writer, Kurdutulain Heder, and it's her book. Uh, it's a magnum opus novel called Akadaria, which is she also translated as uh, herself, and not a great translation, but others have also done it. It's called the River River of Fire. And it's basically a history of uh, the Indian subcontinent uh, narrated through fictional characters uh, over the last 1000 years. So the, it's a huge canvas and it comes right right into the you know, 1950s. 
but it kind of it, it it again lets you understand who we are and where are we coming from not from the you know the, the kind of textbooks uh, that we have grown up with or not not, not the kind of uh, you know doctored narratives that we that are fed but it's actually you know engagement with with that entire range of uh shades of past and well i have personally struggled through reading rumi and i think over time will one day manage to finish it but it is fantastic and it is worth going back to every once in a while to to you know think about certain things a different way the other two are on my list so thank you for sharing that i think river of fire will be top of mind because it's a it's a topic i've been personally thinking about more and more in terms of how did we get to where we were um or where we are now so thank you so much for those recommendations thank you so much for your time this was a fantastic conversation um and wishing you all the best with nayador and with everything else that you're doing i think you're an inspiration i remember watching you on television and before that reading your work and since then following you so it is an honor for me to have you on the podcast so again thank you so much thank you there the honor and pleasure was all mine by the way <laughs>